Today's podcast is brought to you by Craft in Style, a subscription box from Pop Shop America. Do you love to DIY? Get modern and cool kits delivered right to your door each month with the Craft in Style subscription box from Pop Shop America. Boxes ship within three business days, so there's no waiting like other subscription boxes. And each box is super stylish and beginner friendly. January's box is a gilded dinosaur planter kit with four live plants, colored rocks, and moss, and all the supplies you need to create a fun dino planter. So check it out at popshopamerica.com. Thanks so much, Pop Shop America. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 136 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we are talking about building an embroidery business with my guest, Megan Ackman. Megan is the owner and head designer of Studio Me, which creates approachable embroidery kits for modern stitchers. After failing her grandmother's embroidery lessons as a kid, she came back to the craft in 2014 and realized they needed a major update. She now makes kits that help others learn embroidery in a fun and easy manner. It's crafting with hand-holding. Over the past five years, she's landed her kits in almost a hundred shops across the country, partnered with DMC, hired her husband, and currently runs an Embroidery of the Month Club for her most adoring and addicted fans. So Megan Ekman, welcome. Hi. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you for coming on the show. And I'm excited to talk with you about this business that you've built and kind of the winding path toward getting there specifically, I'm super interested in talking about kind of your product development and how you landed on embroidery kits, because (laughs) it's not necessarily like a straightforward shot as to how you got there. Um, And I think it's super interesting. I've, I've been working a lot with people who are developing creative businesses through consulting work that I do. And a lot of what we talk about is product development and the twists and turns of that, some of the resistance that can come with finding the right product and listening to customers um, and then your own feelings about your own artwork and and how to kind of land on something that works and feels good. So that's kind of where I want to end up with your story, but we're going to start more toward the beginning. I know you grew up in North Dakota, which is pretty cool. (laughs) I've never been to North Dakota, but that's a pretty cool place to grow up. So where in North Dakota were you? I was in the only town anybody knows, uh, Fargo. Okay. Uh, Yeah. And we don't have the accent. But yeah, I grew up there. It was really obviously a quiet place, although we were in the biggest city. And I went to college just across the river in Moorhead in Minnesota. So I at least got out of the state, which was a big step. <laughs> okay. And your, I know your dad was a pretty artistic person, even if he wasn't necessarily like a working artist. Yes. So I grew up with, my dad really wanted to be an artist, but he was the last of seven kids. And when he graduated from high school, his parents literally gave him a suitcase and said, good luck. So he had to go to a trade school to be able to support himself. And he wanted to marry my mom. So he had to just sort of give it up um, as a career. But on the side, when I was little, he would always be drawing and painting. Uh, So as soon as I was about three to four, they said they knew I had the potential. So they threw me without asking, like into every art class there was, um, that they could find in the area, private lessons. And I just did it. And I was really good. I have no qualms about saying that I was really good. And it wasn't something though, that I thought I wanted to do as a profession. I just wanted to learn as much as possible. One of the stipulations to get 
as much education as you can in the arts. Generally in colleges, you have to major, which wasn't my intention. Uh, So I ended up having to double major. So I really wanted to be a writer. So I had my degree in creative writing, and then I had to add the degree in fine art, which is drawing. And the first few years, I really fought the art because (laughs) this sounds so silly, but when I was little, I didn't want to be my dad. And so he always drew portraits. And so as a teenager, my rebellious stage was, I'm just going to draw animals. Uh, So I drew animals and like buildings, anything that wasn't a person. And as soon as I got to art school, it was a very classical education. So it was all busts, you know, like you start with the sculpture busts. And then once you move up, you get the live models. And one day I stepped back from my portrait and just, (laughs) I just dropped my head inside and I was like, darn it. I became my father. It looked just like his, the same style. I mean, he could have done it. And I knew at that point, there really wasn't any fighting it anymore. (laughs) So I did end up getting both of the degrees uh, in the end. And the thing that led to the business was that my mother, who was very practical, had a stipulation that I needed to start a business before I graduated. So she really wanted to know that I could make any sort of money if I was going to go into these artsy-fartsy degrees. Uh, So actually, in the winter of 2009, just like a month before I graduated, I started Studio Me and was selling prints of my artwork, which actually got me into a lot of trouble with my fellow students. They saw it as an absolute sellout. Um, because these were digital prints, which is the only way to reproduce artwork that isn't through printmaking. And I was selling it for more than most of the printmakers were selling their prints, which was their problem, not mine. So I actually, when I graduated, I a lot of people were mad with me, but I knew that this was the only way to make a living and that throughout all of history, artists have taken commissions They've sold reproductions of their work. This is the norm. The, the, the idea that we've vaulted up, you know, that you can make it with never doing commissions and making solely what you want really just leads most artists to leave the craft or, you know, have to get another job because there's no way they can make it that way. And then you had like, um, like a book project that one of your professors had helped to arrange at some point, correct? I did. And so I, that was the, the first big gig I got was to illustrate this uh, professor's book. It was the hardest thing because they were not an art professor and it was pen and ink. And she approved all of the, the sketches and the drafts and everything. And then when I finished it, then she wanted to change things, which it's pen and ink. <laughs> it's hard to just move legs and stuff around. So I actually had to buy a Wacom tablet, learn Photoshop, tweak everything. And then it ended up, they ran out of um, money, so it didn't actually get published. (laughs) They still paid me, but uh, yeah, it never made it anywhere. So it was some good life lessons. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And did you apply to graduate school? Were you thinking you would keep going with education? So I did. Um, And my boyfriend at the time was now my husband. He was also in, uh, he's a photographer. So he did the same. I made the mistake that I did not yet know what direction I wanted to go. So I applied to creative writing and a fine art. But because I'd done both majors, I don't think I had a clear idea of what I wanted or and I hadn't spent enough time in either to really have a good enough portfolio to win for either of them. So I actually got rejected by everybody, which was one of the hardest life lessons I ever had. I mean, I ate so much ice cream that month. No. Uh, I'd never been rejected before for anything. Like, it had always just come easy. And to just get these letters after letters after letters, and you've spent so much money applying. And um, luckily, my husband landed one in California because otherwise we didn't know what we were going to do. Because <laughs> uh, we knew we had to get out of the area, but we didn't quite know how, you know, two artists are going to get anywhere and make some money. 
So you ended up moving to California with him. Okay. Option of staying or going to San Jose, California. Okay. It's definitely a go with. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Where the weather is nicer. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also super expensive. Oh my gosh. Yes. I had no idea. And that was, yeah. So I kept my business going, but I mean, I was making... 10,000, 14,000 a year from doing little like Etsy shows or fairs, selling my art prints. So I did have to get a part-time retail job at Borders for the eight months until it closed. And I learned how not to run business through them. Uh, So those were good lessons. And then I actually got hired and some of your audience members might know or remember, but um, so I was actually hired to be a, a virtual assistant to Tara Gentili and Megan Allman and just been down events Australia um, and, and a few how other. Did, how did you meet? <laughs> I remember when you were working as a VA for Just Van Down, but how did you meet Tara Gentili and Megan Allman? Like, how did you make those connections? It's kind of funny once you're the virtual assistant for one, the others all try to like grab you at the same time. <laughs> and what were some of the things? I mean, those are some high powered women who have, you know, built um, pretty, pretty, you know, impressive businesses and sort of the the maker and service based businesses spaces, um, advising makers. And I'm just wondering what some of the lessons you pulled away. I mean, just working with them, working with their, I'm sure, sort of scheduling their content, promoting some of their content that kind of thing, there's probably things that you pulled away from those, you know, pulled out from the, those experiences that you take forward. The Well, the two biggest things that I got out of it, um, one was from Tara, and that was that we like to think of a service-based business and a, a product-based business as very different, but there's actually a lot of crossover. And so that actually is like where with my uh, embroidery kits, you know, it's it's a product but you are giving them this sort of the service of time spent in meditation or sewing. Um, and then like the club is also a service, you know, it, it comes regularly, it gives you something. But I think the biggest thing I took away from it really was there is no shame in really figuring out what you are, like, what's the thing that you have to do for that then all the rest can be parceled out to other people. You know, we we really seem to focus on right now, we kind of talk about, you know, it's handmade, it's one person doing it all. But technically, you know, with my kids, they're all handmade, but it's somebody in China who's handmaking my hoops for me. It's somebody in England who's handmaking my needles for me. You know, there's nothing wrong with being big enough to hire other people and to just say like, for me, design is what I'm best at. And I have uh, my packer, Sandy, who's, you know, best at packing and I'm helping her pay for her daughter's wedding. She's going to Austria next year, you know, things she's never gotten to do before. You know, that's from my business being successful enough to help other people. Just kind of getting rid of that shame of not doing everything. Yeah. Gosh, that's such a huge hurdle too. And we talk about that often on this podcast, just because we come from such a DIY background. Mm -hmm. And so there's this assumption that DIY means you have to do it all yourself. And that means building your own website, maintaining, maintaining WordPress, you know, um, emptying the garbage can at the end of the day, cleaning, you you know, every, every, yeah, absolutely. Everything being able to do InDesign, being able to do Photoshop, uh, servicing your sewing machine. I mean, whatever you name it, every single aspect, um, learning how to use your DSLR camera, uh, you know, like absolutely everything. And it was incredibly eye opening to me as well. When I realized that, you know, a, a sewing pattern business that's, you know, incredibly successful, like Colette, for example, that they have a pattern maker and a photographer and mm-hmm. all these other people. And it's a team and that, you know, you don't have to be this singular genius who does everything. And in fact, if that was the case, 
your business would never be able to scale because <laughs> that's it would be impossible. There's just only so much a single person can do. And so it's actually not ideal for it to be one person. It, it is ideal for it to be multiple people being able to make this happen because that's the only way for it to happen in a larger, at a you know, in a larger way. Yeah. And mm-hmm. your customers aren't offended. You know, they want you to be around. They don't mind that, you know, oh, you had to hire somebody like that doesn't make them like you less. Right. Most people have no idea what goes on in the back end of any business. So they really won't know if you have people or not. If that's, you know, if it's just your perception of what people think that's holding you back, they don't really know. Yes, exactly. Yes, 100%. So, and then you were making artwork to sell and, and these, um, prints, you know, and, mm-hmm. and your work is very sort of like linear. And, and so how did you come to make this into an embroidery project from, <laughs> uh, from a drawing, basically an illustration? Like when was that moment and, and how did that develop? It was a very, very stressful time. Uh, We were making, through the business, we'd maybe gotten up to 20,000, which in the Bay is not enough to live on. I don't know how we did it, thinking back. I would do all these events and it was like pulling teeth. Um, I would try to get shops. It's actually quite hard for retail shops to sell prints because they generally put them all in a bin and then people have to look through them. And you generally don't buy artwork for other people because it's kind of presumptuous and they have to frame it. And and were you doing um, like a wholesale, like B2B show, like shows at all, like gift shows or not, not trade yet. So shows? I was mostly just doing like Etsy because Etsy was, you know, I just drive up to San Francisco. So all the renegade fairs we would do. Okay. Uh, so this you were is doing when they were early. Yeah. Like craft shows. So B2C, yes. co- you know, customers, cash and carry kind of craft yes. shows. Okay. I did. Yep. And then I did have um, quite a few wholesale accounts as well at that time. And how did those but, come to you? Just shops seeing you on Etsy and reaching out and saying, hey, I'd like to carry some of these or something like that. I actually cold pitched. Okay. Like crazy crazy amounts, like 200 shops in a go I could do, um, in a season. Um, just emailing them out and just saying, here's some pictures. I make these, do you, here's the prices. Do you want to carry these? Yep. Okay. And it, it, it worked really well, but I was getting to the point where I was making things. And then if they didn't sell, I would get very upset. You know, like people would say, Oh, I'd love a print of this. And you'd make it. And then nobody bought it. And I was starting to get really angry. I was starting to get burnt out. I wasn't liking what I was making because in that sort of environment, you really have to go with the trend. And the way I was trained and the way my mind thought, like, I'm just a really weird person. I didn't want to do with the trends. So I was getting very disgruntled. My husband knew what was happening. And he just kind of kept telling me like, you have to take a break, which is hard when, you know, you're the sole moneymaker. And like people would say to you, like they would see your art and they would say, I want a print of that one. And so you would do it and then they wouldn't buy it. And then you would get angry with rabbits and you're like, okay. So then you draw something with rabbits and then nobody would buy it. And then you'd get mad at the customer. Yes. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's It's interesting, but no, but I actually think I, and I, so I am in a lot of like Etsy, um, Facebook groups for Etsy sellers, for example. And People do feel very angry at customers that way. It's actually a really common feeling where, you know, people feel like customers asked for this, so I made this and then nobody bought it. And now I'm like mad at them and I feel resentful toward them because they said they would want it and green and I made it in green and now I'm stuck with it. And how come they didn't follow through? I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, the Craft and Style subscription box from Pop Shop America. So this is a subscription box that's full of crafty goodness. You get a box in the mail each month with a different craft project, and you can either order it for yourself or you can give it as a gift. So for example, in September, 
The box was all about candle making and it contained everything you need to make a beeswax and lavender bud candle. So soy wax and beeswax, essential oils and lavender buds. These are things that I personally do not have in my crafty stash at home, but would be really fun to try. And so I think the nice thing about getting a subscription box in the mail is that, well, first of all, it's fun to get snail mail, but also um, you kind of push yourself to try something different, something that you would not necessarily choose if you were out shopping for yourself. But since it comes in the mail, you're kind of like, hmm, maybe I'll try this. And I love that about subscription boxes. So it kind of pushes you and um, gets you out of your comfort zone. And also that this craft would just be for your own enjoyment. It's not necessarily something for your business. There's no pressure. It's not something that you're going to be making as a gift or something that you have to give to somebody else. It's really just for you. And those are two really nice things about getting a subscription box like this. So other boxes have included sunprint photography, gilding, making bath soaks, paper marbling, kawaii jewelry making, all kinds of fun and adventurous things to try your hand at. So I like to give subscription boxes as presents. I think that they are really fun because they kind of spread out the fun over a longer period of time. And with the Pop Shop America Craft in Style style subscription box, you can totally do that. You can treat someone you know um, to a fun box. And this would actually be a good gift for a teenager too, or just for an adult friend that you know that needs a little pick-me-up each month. And Walshy Naps listeners can save 15% off right now on the Pop Shop America website with the code WALSHYNAPS. So head on over and check it out. Thank you so much, Pop Shop America. And now back to my conversation with Megan. So what you have to learn, and I'm still learning, is like you have to ask better questions and you also have to take it with a grain of salt. I mean, it's kind of, I don't even, I never remember the Steve Jobs quote, but it's always, you know, like if you asked people what they wanted, it wouldn't have been the iPod. Right. We didn't know, most people don't really know what they want. Or, you know, if somebody asked me, do you want chocolate cake or cookies? I'll tell you, but that doesn't mean I'm going to fish out my wallet and buy it. I just told you I want them. Right. Totally true. And so anyway, that's, you were having a lot of like hard (laughs) feelings. Your husband said you should take a break. Okay. So then what happened? Most creatives go in a flux. You kind of have these waves of creativity. And that was when I was in a funk and I needed to completely switch it up. And I knew that. So I dug around our apartment and I found some extra unprimed painting canvas and some black thread and needle. And I was just like, I remember embroidering with my grandma when I was about seven to nine and bless her. She taught my brother at the same time. So <laughs> that was nice. And I was like, I just, I just want to see if I can make something on this. So I took one of my most recent drawings, which was of this giant cat on its back. And it looks like there's kind of ocean waves and it was a pun. It was called Meowby Dick instead of Moby Dick. And I just kind of sketched it on with a pencil. And then I just started just making a little running stitch, just like sprinkle shapes, you know, and trying to figure out how I would actually sew this. And I finished it that night. I took some pictures, put it on Facebook because Instagram wasn't around yet. And, you know, just felt just felt better. You know, that kind of helped get things moving again. Um, It was a project just for me. It felt like something I wanted to make. And the next morning, my Facebook had kind of exploded. And everybody was like, oh, I want to make one. You know, nobody said, can I buy this? They all said, I want to make one. And that was when I started kind of considering most of my work. It was line work, pen and ink. So it transferred really well. And I was like, yeah, I could see people wanting to make that. So I went to the craft store and just kind of, you know, I knew that was where you could get patterns and such. And they had the same iron-on transfers that I had done with my grandma. And they were, I mean, when I was seven, I thought Day of the Week cats on my hoodies were awesome. But now I realize it was really, really dorky. Um, So I didn't want to make 
like those. But I kind of just looked at, you know, what you get in a kit, who is selling what, you know, like how I could get these, like, what did you actually need to make embroidery? Because I had come about it, you know, my grandma taught me with the iron-ons, but the way I had done it with Meowby Dick was just me and a pencil and some thread, which most people can't do. I mean, unless you're very confident, you know, and you're drawing, they most people don't embroider that way. So I started to just kind of figure out, okay, so I need some fabric. I went to Joann's. I need iron-ons. So I contacted Colonial Patterns, which was the one selling the day of the week ones there. And they said, yeah, we definitely do custom stuff like this all the time. Just send us the files. And I was like, okay. And then I went to the back to Joann's and got some thread and some hoops. And I just kind of mismatched this thing together. And then at the next retail show, I tested out, I had like two or three kit designs and they sold out immediately. And my art prints sat there and didn't sell at all. That continued for a few more craft shows and like a few seasons. I just, I kept selling both things because I really had a hard time letting go of the art prints, even though it was still getting frustrating (laughs) by them not selling. And then, you know, eventually looking at the numbers, it just, it became obvious that this is the direction it needed to go. And, you know, my husband just kind of said like, why don't you just go with what's easy? You know, the art can always be on the side for you. And then it can be what you want it to be instead of having to be, you know, beholden to the customer or you don't, you know, you don't have to feel as much stress. You can just make what you want and it can still be that kind of magic and let the, the embroidery follow the trends because it, to me, it's not fine art. So I'm fine. Like when sloths came out, you know, I'll make a sloth kit or when deer were big, we'll make a deer kit. Like that doesn't bother me as much as it did with the fine art. Cause the fine art's like, no, I don't, you know, I know sloths are in, but I don't want to draw a sloth. Like that's not, it's not what I'm feeling today. But do you, do you still have, like, do you still get into it? In other words, are you still able to bring your, positive feelings toward the design of the embroidery kit when you sit down to be like okay new season it's time to iter- you know create some new designs a new set of designs for studio me's you know embroidery um kits do you still feel passionate and excited even though you know it's gonna have to be you know, llamas, because llamas are, <laughs> you know, llamas are hot or whatever the next big thing is. Do you know what I mean? Or do you yep. kind of feel like it's a slog or you're like pandering to lo- the lowest common denominator yep. and so you just have <laughs> to do it? You know what I mean? Yep. So I have found over the last few years that there are some tricks. So artists work best under con- um, some restrictions. So I let people shout out as many ideas as they want. I put them all in a spreadsheet, see which get the most votes. And then it's kind of like, how would I draw? And the the one I did most recently was like an oxalotl, the salamander. And I was like, oh, how am I going to? So I, I, it actually becomes a bit of a, a challenge, but also like this joy of like, okay, how would Studio Me draw you know, like, what would a Studio Me Oxalotl kit look like? Like, what colors would it have? You know, this is, it's not a, it, it's a cute creature, but it's really not pretty. You know, like, <laughs> uh, how would we do it? There are some that I try and try and try and try, and I just can't do an elephant. Everybody wants an elephant, and I can't figure it out because it's a giant creature. It doesn't have feathers. It doesn't have fur, you know, like, Unless you're going to do all the wrinkles, but then it's gray. Like there's some things I just have to keep tossing out because I can't figure out. I do, thanks to the club, I give myself permission to make as many as I want to. And then we narrow it down from there. So I really let myself play as much as I want. And I did dinosaurs. You know, I did uh, succulents and pots. We've done narwhals. Like anything that, I don't know if it's the ones that my husband's like, that's never going to work. That's the one that I can get. And I get the same feeling that I get from some of my fine art, where it's like something is kind of helping you along. And you step back and you're like, that's going to be a good one. They're going to like that one. Okay. And so you, it does sound like I can hear from your voice. Like it does still sound like you can get that same 
good yeah. feeling from it um, because you have the constraint, but you can still sort of get creative and give it your own twist. Yeah. And I go through the same emotional process that I do with fine art. So my roommate used to say in college that she could tell how far along I was by how grumpy I was because you really go into battle. And right before it gets good, it gets really, really bad. And you get really, really mad at it. And then you come out the other side and it's like, oh, that was fine. That never happened. Yeah, oh, totally. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah my husband, ask him, he'll tell you that's exactly the same <laughs> yeah, process, so, whether it's an article or that I'm writing yeah. or a new design. Yeah, totally. You know, when you get to the point where you're just like, oh, that you're like, it's going to be okay. We're going to come out the other side in like 20 minutes. <laughs> so, um, the embroidery kits were selling and they felt easy, as your husband said, and the art prints just were sitting there and it became obvious from looking at the numbers um, of what was and what wasn't selling that this was the direction to go in. And I always sort of equate this to um, sort of uh, my first two book deals, book proposals. Um, the first one was incredibly complicated because I thought that that's what was required to write a book. Yeah. You know, I had this very overly complex idea in my mind. So I wrote this um, table of contents, you know, as far as part of the book proposal that was so complicated and it took forever. And then um, the editor I was working with was like, well, why don't you just do a book about the birds? Because I was also making soft sculpture <laughs> birds. And as soon as she said that, I wrote the table of contents in like five minutes. And I was yeah. like, here it is. <laughs> it just and came right just- out this feeling like this is the way I was supposed to go. I was like, oh, we can just do that. That's so easy. easy, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so that became really easy. Um, And so that's how you landed at this product. And um, I'm wondering, I know you have a whole sort of set of these kits that is around places in the United States. Um, Mm -hmm. They're like landmarks. And I think that that's just really brilliant because people whether they are wanting to make something that's sort of commemorating their home, you know, like the San Francisco Bay Bridge or something like that, or they're traveling and they want to get a memento from, you know, a souvenir from where they've been. That's like the perfect thing that they can like stitch on the airplane on the way home to remind them of where they've been. And I can also see, you know, local shops. That's the perfect thing to stock because it's like, you know, get something that you can only get here that would remind you of being here. I mean, it's, it's just absolutely ideal. And so uh, I wondered if you could sort of talk about how you came to create something that was of a landmark and how that's developed as part of your business. Sure. So I come from Fargo, North Dakota, and it's a place that I, I don't really consider it you know, my, my home anymore. It's much more the Bay has influenced me now. I came from a place where you don't want to say that you're from there. Like there's nothing special. Like there's no landmark. It's flat. There's a river, but I mean, you don't go swimming in that river. It's no, uh, there's catfish in it. There's nothing that when people think of your city, they think of the movie with the wood chipper. So when I moved to the Bay, I was really struck by how, Many people were proud of their city and it was really special to them. Um, One woman told me at a show she had a whole room that was painted Golden Gate Orange and only had pictures of the Golden Gate in it. Like she loved San Francisco so much. (laughs) She had a whole room to it. And I realized that unlike me, most people got to come from a place that had something that either the locals liked or was this big landmark. And I kind of started listing out the, the things, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge or the, the Space Needle. A lot of times, too, the things that locals like are very different than the tourists. So up here where I am outside of Portland, like Mount Hood, or as they call it the mountain, you know, is, is really a symbol of the area. Um, so I was kind of playing with designs. And like you mentioned, the practical side of me was realizing this could be a really great wholesale tool because like you said, the local shops want it because they've got everything else, you know, Golden Gate themed or Brooklyn Bridge themed. It's great for people who are proud of where they live and have the room of the Golden Gate or a lot of people buy them now for people who've moved away 
So when they go to college, I have moms that buy them and stitch them up for their kids. You sometimes make them into pillows uh, so they could take that with them to college. Tourists buy them because they go into the retail shops and get, you know, mementos. We started doing um, national park ones too, which I'm still working on getting them into the national parks. That's a much harder market to crack. Uh, But again, I just like, as soon as I did the Golden Gate, I couldn't keep that one in my like booth for the Etsy Renegade at Christmas. It just, it would sell out within hours. It was crazy. I could never make enough of it because it was such a perfect gift for the holidays. Mm-hmm. Right. So fascinating. And so, so have you done trade shows since then? Like, have you done any of the gift shows or are you still just doing craft shows? So we actually stopped doing craft shows. This is our second year without them, uh, which makes the holiday season so much nicer. (laughs) It's a lot of stress. It's a lot of work. Yeah. It got to the point where we just kind of crunched the numbers and it really wasn't like, I'd rather be at home and just have all the wholesale orders go out in October and me be in my pajamas drinking cocoa. So we have done, I think I did two... Etsy, Renegade, they did some wholesale shows in the Bay right before the retail shows. Um, So like a certain night of the week. We've done the Seattle gift show twice, but the West Coast really doesn't have a good wholesale trade show. Okay. So we are now looking at New York now. I was going to say, do you want to do New York now? Yeah. The the issue that I have, because I'll be honest, um, is a lot of shops seem to be finding me through Instagram. Yeah. And it's a lot of money for me and it's a lot of money for them to fly out. And I'm going to start surveying my shops to actually see if they go to trade shows anymore. That's a great question. Don't, then there's no point. Like surveying my best shops, which some of them are like Fancy Tiger in Denver is kind of a makery shop. And then I have some more boutique shops. And I want to ask both of them, you know, is this even something you do? Because a lot of times now they can just find what they want on social media and then they don't have to fly. They don't have to get the food. They don't have to get the rooms. At this point, I I don't think we're going to do it because I know from doing all of Megan Almond's uh, workshops when I was doing her emails and such, um, you know, it's a, it's like three years to get a good return on your investment. Yeah. And it's a lot it's of about, money because you're looking grand. Yeah, I was yeah. just going to say, you're looking at $8,000. Yeah, um, nice <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I really, I don't know if you listen to the proof to product podcast, um, but with Katie Hunt, but um, she, she's, it's, it's more paper focused um, than quilting or, you know, this podcast mm-hmm. is sort of more fabric and quilting focused, but, um, but her show, and she comes from a paperback background, but she really focuses on trade shows and she knows a lot about them. And um, I've learned a lot about what it takes to exhibit at New York now, or really she focuses a lot on the national stationery show from listening to those episodes. So if you are interested and want to yeah. sort of get a little bit more kind of insider scoop or for anybody who listens to this show and is interested, I totally recommend her show. And, um, and you'll just pick up some tips about, you know, what it really requires and what the rewards might be, you know, and I guess my feeling is that it might be worth doing once, you know what I mean? And, and sort of building the relationships that you get from that one go um from there and then sort of not necessarily having to go every single time um but to skip it all together you know I, I guess I feel like try like do it once yeah, but I know at the same time though you know do you I don't know there, there's you have to have walls and you have to build out the yeah. booth and it's like if you do it once and you've you know, invested in all of that infrastructure. It's like, do you just do it once after all of that? You know, it gets cheaper as that stuff, you know, once you've invested in it once, why not use it again? So it becomes a little bit hard to, to just to say that unless you can share a booth with somebody who's already got some of those things built, but yeah. Mm -hmm. And we looked at doing the retail shows again, like the holiday fairs and whatnot from when we started to now, I mean, the game has completely changed. I mean, 
And Portland, it's a little different. Portland is still very much in the DIY. So like I just walked one of their shows for the holidays and they've still got, you know, like drapes and like blankets up in the back and like that stuff's fine. But when you do San Francisco, I mean, there were people with hard walls, furniture, fake flooring. I mean, it's super pro. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no way you can come in with your table and tablecloth anymore. It's almost like, it's almost like how Etsy's change. It's like, you can't just like pop up a blurry picture and hope for the best. You have to have like, you know, I mean, cause that's what I used to do and things would still sell like back in 2005, like things would sell. And I seriously had no idea what I was doing, but now that's just, you know, that's a no go. Like you can't, you can't run it. Yeah. Yeah. My mother-in-law was like, I should maybe put some stuff on Etsy. And I was like, no, no, you can't. No. Just don't do that. She's like, but maybe to sell like for five bucks. I'm like, yeah, but it's too much time and you don't know how to use your camera. <laughs> yeah. It's just not worth it. Just like have a yard sale. You'll make more money. Yeah. No, I know. I actually had a friend of mine's mom ask me that exact same thing. And I was just like, yeah, you don't know about SEO. Like, just don't do that. Exactly. Yeah. It's so different now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No. And I, let's talk a little bit about packaging. Um, so I'm assuming back in the old days after you, you know, went to Joanne and, um, figured out what, you know, component parts you needed to put together a kit and all of that between then and now the packaging for these items has changed because one of the things that you have to keep in mind when you're putting a product into a retail store is that it needs to be packed in such a way that, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people can pick it up look at the back, look at the front, look inside potentially and put it back down on the shelf. And then the next person comes and it looks just as good (laughs) and it's still saleable and it still looks brand new. Um, And so that requires a kind of packaging that's, you know, pretty robust and Mm -hmm. professional looking and et cetera. So um, I guess talk about like sort of how you were packaging these things in the beginning and then how that's evolved (laughs) and how they look now. Okay. So I need to preface this with, I am not a crafter. I am really not an embroiderer. Um, I'm like the gym teacher, like those who can't do, you know, teach. Um, those who can't craft my kids. <laughs> Megan, so, come on. Now. I know. No, I have a team of ladies who sew my kits for me. Um, I can sew. I just, I don't, to me, it's not what I enjoy. So you make and, the design, but they sew the sample that is photographed. Yep. yep. Okay. <laughs> Um, because I have other things that I find more enjoyable to do and I'd rather have so, I mean, they love doing it and I pay them. Um, and I just have other people who, who love it more than I do. And my customers love it more than I do. And that actually gives me a very different perspective to make these kits. Um, and that I am not my customer, which most people aren't anyway, but it's like, I'm really not my customer, but I came about it as, okay, I know everything you need. And I know how I learned and how I learned wasn't great. So how would I like, how would I have liked to have learned? So first when they, when they came out, it was, you had plain white fabric and an iron on and a hoop. And so the iron on and this little like half, like quarter sheet of paper with the image of what it would look like. And the fabric went into a cellophane bag that I hole punched, making sure not to punch through the fabric. And then I tied with a ribbon to the hoop because I'd seen other people do this. Okay, shops hate that. (laughs) They really hate that because they come separated and it doesn't hang well. um, And people like keep turning it over and they could see because I had a cellophane bag. So they could at least see it. They could understand it, but it wasn't great. And they got damaged a lot um, with people ever sent them back to me. So then I thought, okay, so I won't tie them together. I'll leave the two parts, but I will put them in a bigger bag. That looked even worse because there was so much extra bag that it would just get wrinkled and crumpled and everything. So it was about this time that I realized, okay, nobody likes (laughs) iron-ons, at least my customer. My customers don't like iron-ons because they might not have an iron. It's a little finicky. It's old school. And my designs were quite complicated. So figuring out what was meant to be, what color was difficult. And I remember as a child kind of being overwhelmed that the patterns were all black and I didn't know what to put where. 
So thanks to the magic of Spoonflower, uh, we switched to them and they began printing our designs in color on the fabric. So now it's more like a paint by number. And then we still kind of like folded it, put the needle and the thread on top. And we still ended up putting it into a bigger bag, but now we made our um, kit papers bigger, but it was still just one page. So like the front had a the picture of the finished tube and told you what was in it. And then the back was just a stitch guide that showed you what stitch went where. And then a little like very short directions. Um, but the problem was people still didn't necessarily know how to sew. So we started on our website to put, um, at first it was just this PDF guide with little diagrams of how to do the stitches. So at the on the back side of your stitch guide, it would say at the bottom, like, need to learn how to sew, like go to this website and you can download a PDF. And so people really liked that because one, they could, everything came together in this cellophane bag. Um, because the kit paper filled the bag, the bag didn't get damaged anymore. Um, they could turn it over, see everything inside. And there was a bit of handholding it with the diagrams. Then what we realized is that people wanted to learn or people wanted to basically open this and go. And you might not have cell phone service where you are, so you can't download the PDF. So I decided, okay, let's one, make videos to put on our website because some people are visual learners that way. And then we also made the kit papers into booklets that open to teach with diagrams, the four basic stitches. So this way, if you gave it as a gift on the way home, like in the car, you could start it or you could buy it when you are on your trip. You could start it on the airplane, not having to worry about, you know, trying to get the PDF before you uh, take off. So we really fought, my husband and I, we had some big arguments about the packaging because I was so gung-ho for boxes. I really wanted craft boxes. Um, I'd seen other people making them, other embroidery kit designers. They looked so nice. And so at one of my trade shows, I <laughs> I put up this sample box um, that I had bought from a custom box guy. Um, it had a wrap around, uh, basically our kit paper wrapped around it um, that had to be taped. And then the top and bottom of the box had to be taped because they pop open. And it was this really skinny box because it was only as wide as the hoop. And so it still said what was all inside of it. And there were little, you know, pictograms, uh, infographics showing you everything. And I asked everybody who came in, some had carried my stuff before and some hadn't, you know, like, how, how do you feel? Like, <laughs> if you could have them in the box for your order, would you like it? And oddly enough, the message that I got over and over and over again was no. We want the cellophane mm. because one, sometimes my stuff goes into toy stores. And so one of the ladies ran a toy store and she said, my customer will rip that box to shreds like wow. in a day because wow. they want to see what's in it. Right. So they'll open it. First thing she says, first thing they're going to do, they're going to tear it open. She goes, and then I've got all your stuff all over my floor and I don't know where it goes. The other thing she said is I got to find something to put that in because it's too skinny to stand on its own because they flop over. So she's like, I'm going to have to prop them on a shelf, but then they can fall and slide off. They don't, they have hardly any weight too, which is what I realized when I found some in, in person in a, a shop, I got all excited. Like I finally found the box, you know, I want to see what it looks like. It's so light that it actually feels cheap. Uh-huh. It's like this empty plastic, you know, it's this empty cardboard box. It feels empty. 30, yeah. Yeah. That you're paying 30 bucks for. Right. You're like, there's nothing in this box. Why is it so yes, expensive? Like, why is it $30? Um, Whereas a bag, you're like, oh, I see all the stuff inside. I get it. Yes. So we are still having my husband and I arguments about the packaging because if we wanted to get into some place like MoMA, which we've looked at, SF MoMA, they have a higher caliber of packaging. Like you'd have to go to the museum shop trade show. They're not going to buy it when it's in a bag. It would need to be in a box. Um, the Amcor, I think it is, uh, who runs the, yeah, uh, the people who run the park services, 
they have their own trade show as well. Oh. As my husband put it, like, it's going to have to be in a metal tin. Right. You know, kind of woodsy, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, as we discuss, like, new avenues we want to go, we realize we may have to offer some of these things in, like, multiple packaging options or – you know, we're going to have to have the, like the come to Jesus moment to go like, where are the customers? Because if they're not the type that would buy this at MoMA, then it doesn't matter. Then it could be in the bag. It could be in the makery shop. It could be in the boutique instead. And we don't need to worry about the box, but the box still looks really pretty. Yeah, no. <laughs> I can't get over it. But I know people who screen print every box and I'm too practical. Like I don't have time. Right. Like I'm not going to pay for it. And to get a giant sticker costs too much. Um, a lot of the decisions that we make in our packaging, like the fact that we give you a full skein of thread, there aren't very many others who do that. And my thinking is, I don't want to take the time to wind it, (laughs) really not like split it in half. And that 20 cents I saved, like I would have had to pay my packer to wind it. So I may as well just give you more thread so you can make something else at the end. Or sometimes my customers use more thread than I tell them to. So it's better to have more or, you know, like if you start out like me, you get lots of rat's nests. So you don't want to have just the right amount. Yeah. That is generous to give them a full skin of thread because like I designed a kit for Quarto, um, to the publishing house and it's for little taxidermy felt taxidermy heads. And so it gives you a pattern book for 10, but then there's supplies to make two of the 10 and so they give you felt and they give you stuffing and needle. They give you everything you need, the little backing board for the little to mount the head. And they give you floss so that you can stitch it. And they definitely don't give you a full skein of floss. They like took the floss off the skein and wound, right. you know, Somebody if I said that some intern, yeah, if I said you needed 36 inches, they give you 36 <laughs> inches and that's it. There's only 36 inches in there. So, um, yeah, it, that, that, that's generous to give you that much. And so, um, so talk, let's talk a little bit about outsourcing. So I know that, um, you have, you mentioned that you have, um, people who stitch up the samples that get photographed. And I know your husband is a photographer, so yes. he's working with you now is this his full-time gig it is okay so he does the photography he does graphic design graphic design and what else does he do uh he does my video and mostly he's uh he's the (laughs) the official lead balloon at the company um because i have so many ideas and he gets to come in and be the practical one who's like i don't think that's going to work or like let's actually run the numbers um because when he doesn't come in we get into trouble like i made a line of stuffed animals once because that's what my customers said they wanted right Uh, so there was briefly a line and they were cute too there was a lot speaking of llamas there was a llama they were adorable and i had to learn how to sew i didn't know how to sew and it was like a kit to make your own what what animals were there besides the the llama so my husband helped me design a giraffe um, I'm actually staring at the line because it inhabits our bookshelf now. We made a sheep, a scrub jay, which is kind of like a blue jay bird. And my, f- oh, then we made a Shetland pony with a sweater for Christmas. And my favorite was just, it's the easiest one. It was a blue whale. Okay. So you had a whole had line. Levels. You had a whole line of these kits that were sort yeah. of a sew your own stuffed animal. And did they yes. involve embroidery as well or no? Just sewing. The- you could add it. So they all had little things that you could embroider on them. Uh, so yeah, everybody said we want something harder and stuffed animals were really big. There were people doing that. The feedback that came back after they launched, cause we had to get boxes. We had to screen print the boxes. We had to find stuffing, find a way to stuff the stuffing in the box. Um, the feedback that came back was a, I don't have a sewing machine. B, like it's $40. I could buy a stuffed animal for that. <laughs> um, and shops just could sell them because you could buy at like Etsy Renegade craft shows and you could buy a, somebody else had made you one for 40. Um, it was really disappointing. I completely shot myself in the foot with it, but I learned some great sewing skills. Um, yeah. And I learned better how to listen to customers. So then actually we revamped it and came up with a line of ornaments that you blanket stitched the outside of. 
They were the same animals. Just they were smaller ornaments. You still stuff them. And those didn't sell either because now they were seen as too easy. (laughs) It's like, I just can't win. Um, So I'm actually, I am very leery with the business right now to do anything that isn't just an embroidery kit. Because those seem, yeah, those seem to be the things that sell the best. Okay. And I've tried iron-ons and my customers don't respond to those. you know, kind of like more old fashioned ones where you, it's lots of different designs and you could kind of pick and choose and put them together. My customers don't really respond to that. So it's just kind of becoming, it's becoming better at knowing what my customer actually wants. Right. (laughs) Despite what they say. Despite what they say. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, I know. I think that that's really important and, um, and not letting people try to convince you or push you around and sort of having yeah. a very clear vision, I think it's really hard to do at times too. Yeah. And so, okay. So you also mentioned you have a packer and does she work yeah. from her own space or does she come to you? She works from her own space. So she comes to our house at the beginning of the week and picks stuff up and then brings it back at the end of the week. She just has a part-time job otherwise. And her daughter just moved out of the house and is getting married. So it's perfect. You know, she's got nights and weekends to herself and she loves it. She just puts on like soap operas and packs away. Okay. So she have a packer. Is, do you, and then do you have anybody else who works on your team or is that it? Your husband, you and your packer? I have a virtual assistant who mostly she does market research for us. So she will look at what our competitors are up to. She'll look at trends on Etsy and on Pinterest. She will find the shops that we're going to pitch in the next uh, cycle and get all the information. She does a bit of our social media in terms of just grabbing the stats for us. Okay, great. And, um, and then the very last thing I wanted to ask you about, well, we have many other things that we could talk about, but we're going to be a little <laughs> bit short on time. It's just about your subscription club and um, what that has helped to sort of provide for you as far as um, steady income. People began to get addicted to the patterns and I would, I would sometimes have flops. Like I put something out because I needed money and it was like, it was falling into the same trap as with the art prints. You know, you said you wanted this and I would be getting stressed and I needed the money. So it's a fast launch. Here it goes. And then nobody would buy it. So I had run a club once before and I hated it because, um, it just sent the PDFs via email, but then it was always making sure everybody's emails are right. And the PDFs were I hate PDFs for my work. There's just, they're so complicated to print out and draw that, you know, sometimes I would get things back from customers and it would kind of look like a kindergarten drawing. And I'd be kind of embarrassed that that was going out on social media with my name attached to it. And it wasn't their fault. It's just that it was really hard. So I knew I didn't want to do PDFs again. So I tried to figure out like what's the least, like the minimum viable product that I could make a club with. And it was the pre-printed fabric the thread and the directions. That's all you need. They already have a hoop. They already have a needle. It'd come in a little envelope that was printed. So I don't need to use any cellophane, which is great environmentally. And it comes monthly. And we do offer a few different variations now because people get busy. It, when we launched, I was going to be happy if I had 10 people. <laughs> And we passed 50 the first day and I was like, okay, like (laughs) got some crazy addicted fans now. And it just kind of kept growing from there. As many join as equal those that leave every month. So we're kind of just percolating around the, under the 200 mark now. But what it does mean is that every month I know that that money is coming in and it's a huge boost. It definitely has let me be more creative. You know, like I said, I take the time and I make probably 36 patterns and then we weed it down to 12. I let the customers vote like between patterns or colors or, you know, give their advice. What it also allows me to do though, is actually test out patterns that would then come to the club. So I no longer put something out that flunks and then have this feeling of dread because I've also sold it to my shops. Right. It's happened a few times. Now I know 
I'm confident when I put it on my line. She's like, this thing's going to sell. Don't worry. The club went crazy for it. We had X number of people join just to get this. And that's, it's been a huge confidence boost because other times you would, I'd send out the line sheet and they'd order something and you're just like, oh no, like, I don't know if it's going to work. Yeah. (laughs) It's a great testing. It's a great testing ground. The same way that taking something to a craft fair is, but this allows you to stay home and not have to go to the craft fair. Yeah. You know, you don't have to produce it to the full extent. Right. So that also helps. Um, And I do have test stitchers for that. So they also can give me feedback. They actually take the photographs that I then use for social media. So I provide them with like the backdrop, the wood that they photograph on, and then they send me X number of photos as they're sewing. So it really gets to build this sense of community. And now for um, 2019, what everybody has said, which helps me learn more, is they want new stitches. Um, So I'm actually learning new stitches. And then, you know, they've given me more feedback of like, we'd like this instead, or we want more options for how to do the design. Because what I've been discovering since I'm not my customer is that a lot of people identify as creative, but they're not confident in it. So they want permission to like, do this other stitch. Like I have people email me and they're like, can I do this? Like, yeah, I'm not coming to look like (laughs) you can do whatever you want. But they need that permission. Absolutely. I mean, that's the kind of person who buys a pattern and who buys a yeah. kit. They're yes. buying those things because they don't necessarily have the confidence. They are creative. They want to do something creative. Otherwise, they wouldn't be buying it at all. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it was something I didn't realize because everybody would always be like, oh, I want to make this, but I don't know how. And with my background, I was like, just draw it. You know? Right. <laughs> no, right. It. It's a very yeah, different. Think, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. You're creating like, like a water. Like, water when you sew. Like, that's yeah, you you're do. creating a product for other people's leisure time and for their creative yes. expression. And so you yeah. just have to get into that mindset and understand who your customer really is. And so it really sounds like, Megan, like you've done a lot of customer listening, which is really interesting. And sometimes it's gone well and sometimes it hasn't gone well. But yeah. um, all right. I want to make sure we get to your list. And um, so you wanted to recommend recommend a podcast that I also love, which is called How I Built This with Guy Raz and on NPR. I've listened to every episode. So yes, I, know, I just binged it. <laughs> That's a great show. What I really like about it is um, like every year, my husband, and I kind of have discussion like this year's going to be better. I know it wasn't did last year didn't go as planned. We didn't make as much as we thought we would. This year's going to be different. Like we've never yet had the feeling this isn't going to work. We know that it's going to take time, you know? And so we kind of start each year, like, do you think we can do it? And the answer is always yes. And listening to these podcasts, it's really helped because they're like, it took me five years to get to X or eight years to get to X. And so it really helps you take that longer picture and go, as long as you deep down really think this can work and you've, you know, put in the time and ever like it can work. It's just going to take longer than you, it might take longer than you thought. Yeah. And the thing I also really pull from that is about persistence, you know, which I think is sort of echoing and a different aspect of what you're, you're saying, but, you know, hanging in there and, you know, I always say to people like, I will be the last person standing, like, I'm not going to quit. I'll just keep going. That's the way, like, that's just the nature of my personality. Like, I'll just always be here doing the same thing um, because it's what I really like to do. And so I'm not going to stop doing it. And I think that that goes a long way sometimes, um, even if you're not necessarily the most talented person or, you know, gifted or whatever it is at what you're doing. If you're just keep on doing it, sometimes <laughs> that pays off. So, yes. and I think you hear that a lot in the stories of the people who are on that show. Um, they just don't quit, you know, mm-hmm. they like refuse to give up. So, um, that's heartening for me. And, um, and then you also listen to the Very Serious Crafts podcast with, um, <laughs> Haley. There's a bunch of the people, um, and Molly who, who do that show have been on this show. Yeah. Um, Heidi is my childhood friend. We were, our lives are so similar. It's a little freaky. Um, cause we both are brothers the same age and come from mixed religious families. And, uh, yeah, we, we grew up together and she, 
constantly amazes me with her talent. And then when she, she did, um, she started the podcast with the others. It was really nice because she, uh, I helped her kind of get into her own business. And so it's been really fun to see where she goes. And then these other women who are so talented at what they do, you know, it's, it's, it's a very serious craft, <laughs> much more than mine. Yeah, it's fun. And it's fun to have um, a new craft podcast on the scene for sure. Yeah. The more the merrier. So bring them on. Um, and then you also wanted to recommend Shishiko Supplies by Olympus. Um, and these are from a fancy tiger. Yeah. So a lot of local craft shops sell them now. I know um, if you're here in Portland, Bolt sells them uh, and assembly. But uh, fancy tiger is one of my vendors and they uh, Olympus, I think you can actually get them on Amazon too, but it's always nice to support local shops. They're just so much fun. So she goes really kind of exploded onto the scene yeah. and it's, it's uh really meditative um, and the designs are just so gorgeous. I love how efficient um, the Japanese are in designing things. You know, it started out as a mending technique and then they really embellished it to just be the most beautiful designs. Um, but then it's, it's so different than Western embroidery where they said like, yeah, we're going to make a lot of stitches, but we're going to do it in one go. I kind of love that mentality of like, I'm going to figure out a way to do this really fast. Yeah, totally. And it's so neat and tidy and I do love it with mending and I want to do some, even if it doesn't need to be mended, but like on, on some jeans, um, just because it's so beautiful, like on really dark denim. Yes. Yeah. My husband's been mending all of his shirts with it lately. Yeah. Oh, it's so pretty. It's really, I, I love it. I agree with you. It's, it's really nice. I need to, maybe it's a good project for the summer. I feel like when I'm on the go and need, um, handwork to do. So that would be good. Yeah. For me there's do. a great book. Uh, Jessica Marquez just put out the make and mend. Oh that yeah. I had that in my holiday it. gift guide. Yeah. I had that um, in my holiday gift guide this year. So I know I need to get on that. I want to, I want to give it a, give it a go. So, well, Megan, thank you so much for, for also for like your honesty with sharing your numbers and some of the ups and the downs of your business. <laughs> and just for taking the time to be on the Wall Street Naps podcast. It was really great talking with you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Today's episode was sponsored by the Craft in Style subscription box from Pop Shop America. If you love to DIY, then go and get a modern and cool kit delivered to your door each month with, with the Craft in Style subscription box from Pop Shop America. The boxes ship within three business days, so there is no waiting like other subscription boxes. And each box is super stylish and beginner friendly. January's box is a gilded dinosaur planter kit with four live plants, colored rocks and moss, and all the supplies you need to create a super fun planter. And be sure to use the code while she naps to save 15% off at checkout. So head over to Pop Shop America and take a look. Thank you so much, Pop Shop America. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.